Habakkuk chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning and share just a few thoughts with you. Beginning in uh, verse number 1, this is a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. And he says in verse 2, Lord, I have heard your speech and I was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. And in wrath, remember mercy. I want to go to verse 17, which will be at the end of this chapter. And um, we'll actually look at verse 16. When I heard my body tremble, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. And then there is this faith statement by Habakkuk, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, even if the flock is cut off from the field and there are no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like deer's feet. And he will make me walk on my high hills. Holy Spirit, I'm so thankful that you are a shield about us. No weapon formed against us can prosper. The word does not promise that we will not have fiery darts hurled at us. The word does not promise that we will never have trials or rivers or fire. But it says when we pass through the waters, you are with us. The rivers won't overflow us and the fire won't burn us. Promises that no weapon formed against us shall be able to prosper. So, Lord, I pray this morning that um, somehow you would speak to us in these moments. God, I ask that you do what I can't do. And that is to somehow take my words, anoint them, and use them to encourage, challenge, stir and arouse your people in this place today. Supernaturally captivate our attention. We want to learn today, but... Lord, we want to go beyond just learning. We want to rise to a new place of victory in you. So would you do that work among us? Would you challenge us and stir us and captivate us in these few moments that remain today? Help me to speak not one single word of my own, but only that which is from you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are... um, going to move today. Last week we spent all of the message in chapters one and two of this little small prophetic book, the book of Habakkuk. Um, It's often overlooked, often misunderstood, um, tiny little three chapter book in the Old Testament. It's a book that uh, primarily deals with the questions and the perplexities the confusion, the struggle that's experienced by God's people when times are uncertain. There are people in this room this morning that uh, have experienced times of uncertainty. 
when things didn't make sense, when you weren't getting the answer that you wanted, when you were praying and it seems like the heavens were brass and doesn't seem like God is at work like you would want him to be, when things just seem to be rough and difficult and challenging, probably everyone in this room has experienced times like that. And Habakkuk addresses how we are to navigate those days. Let me very quickly give you the context of Habakkuk. And I'll only spend just a couple of minutes here. He is prophesying um, in about 612 BC. This is the same time that the former world power, which was Assyria, and their capital city, Nineveh, was falling. Nineveh was where Jonah was called to go but did not want to go. And so Habakkuk is a prophet in this period of time when the Assyrian Empire is crumbling at the same time the Babylonian Empire is growing stronger. It will be the next world power. Um, The last godly king that had reigned over the Jews was a young man by the name of Josiah who had just died or did die in 609 B.C. And so we're in this period of time when the people of God have experienced their last godly king. Uh, The world is in uproar. The Babylonians are attacking. The Assyrian empire is falling. And then thirdly, and really what is most important is, as I mentioned, the power of Babylon is getting greater, but the sin of the Jewish people is becoming even more evil and more devious and more ungodly. Because of that, it, it it is obvious that God is going to have to judge his people because of their sin. The book of Habakkuk, and just look right here for just a moment, the book of Habakkuk is really a dialogue. It's a conversation between Habakkuk and God. And it's all coming out of this context when the world is kind of in uproar. There's a world empire that's falling. There's a new one coming on the scene. God's people are wicked and evil and, and, and steeped in idolatry and immorality. And all of this seems to be coming to a head. And so at the end of the day, ultimately, um, Habakkuk is going to prophesy that his own people are going to be judged. And they're going to be judged harshly. They're going to be destroyed. The, the, the nation of Judah is going to fall. And Habakkuk is the one that delivers that news. It's not a message that any preacher would ever want to deliver. But it was a message that our people are going to be judged because of our sin, we are going to fall. There are four issues of concern that I addressed last week in these first two chapters. And the first of those issues was the perplexity of the faithful. Sometimes the world doesn't make sense. Say amen if you believe that. And that's what Habakkuk experienced. It just did not make sense that His own people were becoming more and more ungodly. And it seemed like God was not going to do anything. It's the same thing we all face today. We look around and we cannot believe where our own nation has come to. How it has spiraled downward. And and sin and ugliness and violence and hatred just seems to be everywhere. And the church has become so compromised. And we accept and tolerate anything and and sound doctrine seems to be laughed at and scorned. And so the faithful are perplexed. The world doesn't seem to make sense. 
second thing we talked about was the sovereign plan of God. Sometimes his ways are not our ways. How many have found that to be true? He doesn't always work when we think he ought to work or how we think he ought to work. I mean, all of us have answers to our perplexities. If God would just listen and do what we told him to do, it would all work out just fine. And yet there is a sovereign plan of God. And in this situation, God's sovereign plan was Habakkuk. I am going to do something about the wickedness of your people. I'm going to judge them. And guess how I'm going to judge them, Habakkuk? I'm going to use a people more wicked than they are. The Babylonians. And I'm going to let them judge my own people. Which brings us then to the third issue that we dealt with last week. And that was the struggle of the godly. Why do the righteous suffer? Why, do, why does the remnant of people in Judah that were still serving God, what about Habakkuk? Why and how could God take his own people, even though they were sinning, and even though they had turned their back on God, how could God take the favored people of God, the chosen people, and judge them at the hand of a people more wicked than they? Why do the righteous suffer? Why do, does it seem that the ungodly get away with even more sometimes than the godly? Which brings us to the fourth issue we discussed last week, and that is the quiet trust of the just. Sometimes we have to do what Habakkuk did in chapter 2 in the first couple of verses. He said, I'm just going to stand on my watch. I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to listen and I'm going to watch. I'm going to see what God does. You know, there are times that it's best for us just to shut up. Yeah, I just said that. I did say that. You, you, you quoted me right. I said sometimes it's best for us just to shut up, stand still, and learn to quietly trust God in the midst of difficult situations. And that's where Habakkuk lands. I'm going to quietly trust God through this. And as he does that, God speaks to him. And God says to Habakkuk, we talked about this last week, the Babylonians that seem like they're getting away with everything, they are proud and they are haughty. And right now I'm using them, but they won't stand forever. They will fall. But while the proud will fall, the just, will live by faith. The just, Habakkuk, those that I have called, those I've chosen, those I have declared just, the people of God, even though things are going on that don't make sense, they will live by their trust in the faithfulness of God. So God invites us finally to hush before his presence and allow him to speak to us in our confusion because he is a speaking God. And we can stand before reverence and fear and hear his voice. Today we are going to move now toward the climax of this book and we're going to learn why in the midst of confusion and turmoil, Habakkuk can still rejoice. Let, let me just ask you real quickly. I want you to look right here for just a moment. I, I want you to be honest. How many, I'm not talking about whether you do or not, but how many find it hard when things are not good 
to rejoice. How many would be honest and say, it's hard. We're going to talk about how is it that Habakkuk, in the midst of all of this turmoil, can say, I will rejoice. Number one, um, there are four reasons. Number one, he rejoiced in the hope of God's merciful character. He says uh, in, in verse 1, this is the prayer of Habakkuk. I've heard your speech and I was afraid. Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. And look at this last phrase. Look at it on the screen. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk chapter 3 is a song, by the way. That's why there's that funny little word, shiganoth. That's a musical term. It's a song. It's a prophetic song. And it was not uncommon for prophets to, to put their prophecies into a melody. And the, the lyrics became the prophetic word. And that is what is taking place here. Moses did very much the same thing in Deuteronomy 13. Now that God has spoken and he has told Habakkuk what is going to happen. And Habakkuk sees the course that is before him. And that Babylon is going to come and he's going to destroy, Babylon is going to destroy the Jews, at least for a season, and bring devastation. Habakkuk is just praying that God will sustain him. That God will keep him. That God will reveal his mercy to his people, even though he is going to bring judgment to them. He prays this, revive your work in the midst of the years. A lot of people have speculated what he means by that. But I think that what Habakkuk is saying is, God, there's going to be a period of time between that day when you judge us and that day that you return, that we're still looking for. And he is saying, would you somehow revive the Jews in between those two periods of time? And by the way, we're still in between those two periods of time when the Jews were destroyed in Babylon and when one day they will come back to God. His prayer is, would you revive us in the midst of the years? Let me also say, every godly American that cares about their country ought to be praying. I, I, think, I think that it is almost a foregone conclusion that we are going to experience some kind of judgment But what we need to be praying is, God, would you revive us in the midst of this period of time, in this period of time between when you judge us and you return, would you revive us again so that we can experience the glory that we once knew, the the glory that once was manifest among us. And he says, in the midst of the years, make it known. Let others see what you are doing with us. But I want you to notice the last statement in wrath, in wrath. The word is rogan, means fury or anger. And your wrath, remember mercy. The whole prayer and the whole cry of, look right here, of Habakkuk is based on his confidence in the character of God. He is confident that God is a merciful God. How many are glad God is a merciful God? You know, the Bible says he does not treat our sins like they ought to be treated? How many are glad he doesn't treat our sins as they ought to be treated? He doesn't pay us back for what we deserve. So this whole prayer is because Habakkuk knows that God is a merciful God. Jonah knew that. That's why he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place because he knew if they repented, God would forgive them. 
And Habakkuk knew that judgment was coming, but he also knew that God was a merciful God, and he prayed for that mercy. In your wrath, would you also remember mercy? The psalmist said in Psalm 100 and verse 5, the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting. And look at what Jeremiah says in Lamentations. We all know this. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. His mercies are new every morning. Mark Batterson in his book, If, challenges people about this verse to count up how old they are in, the, uh, in days, not in years. I'm not going to ask you to do the math. You can, you can build off of mine. I am 55 years old. How many are glad that you're younger than 55? How many are honest enough to admit that you're more than 55? Okay, so I'm giving you the kind of the middle ground here. Well, middle ground, maybe. I don't know if I'll look to be 110 or not, but we'll call it middle ground. I have lived 20,112 days. I am 20,112 days, and that makes me tired every time I say it. Oh, But what that means is that God has mercied me at least 20,112 times. How many believe his word is true? His mercy is new every morning. So every time I wake up for 20,112 and tomorrow will be 13, he will mercy me again. So in the midst of the struggle... In the midst of the pain, I can rejoice because God's character is merciful and he's got new mercy for me every single morning. Say amen if you believe that. Number two, uh, he rejoiced in the eternal faithfulness of God. Now, uh, whoever's on, is it Tom or on PowerPoint, uh, just work with me here. I'm going to maybe not read all of these verses. I want to make the point, not get bogged down. The prayer or the song continues now in verse 3 through 15. And it is, a, it is a description. This prayer is a description of the coming of God. The coming of Christ. I will read you this. He says this in verse 3. God came from Taman, the Holy One, from Mount Paran. And his glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand. And there his power was hidden. Before him went pestilence and fever followed at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations. And everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. Now I know if you read that through in your devotions, you're going to think, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Let me just give you a little clarity. This is talking about the coming of God into the midst of the situation of God's people. The locations that are mentioned here, Kushan and Midian and Paran, all are places that Israel came to in the wilderness on their way to the land of promise. This is their movement, their journey toward Canaan. And in every place, watch this, in every step of the way, God came down and met them and showed him his glory and helped them fight off their enemies. The truth is, look right here, the truth of this text is 
that his coming to us in the past is a basis for our assurance that he will come to us in our future and intervene on our behalf as well. In other words, this is way past that day now when Habakkuk is prophesying and he is saying to God's people, just as God came to us in the wilderness and showed his glory and fought off our enemies, so he will come to us in the midst of our struggle again. He is declaring, look, the eternal faithfulness of God. You know what Paul said about God's faithfulness? God said, even When we are faithless, he remains faithful. Anybody ever felt like you were faithless? But take heart, God is faithful. And he makes up for our faithlessness. Habakkuk is saying, I can rejoice because God is eternally faithful. In verse 8, he describes God's past victories. That anticipate his action in the future. He speaks about rivers. He speaks about chariots. The rivers of the Jordan River and the waters of the Red Sea. God rolled them back. The chariot swept up Elijah after he had fought with the prophets of Baal. And God is simply saying, Habakkuk is saying, how God has acted in the past, he will act again in the future. As Babylon comes and threatens the promises of God, ultimately God's chariots will rescue his people. In verses 9 through 11, Habakkuk describes God as having his bow ready, being ready to divide the waters. He said even the sun and the moon would stand still if necessary. Listen, when the Jews read that text and heard that prophecy, they remembered the day when Joshua was fighting and he needed a little bit more time and God told the sun to stand still. And what Habakkuk is saying, if God did it before, he will do it again. God can be trusted to perform on behalf of Israel even after he judges them. How many are thankful that when God disciplines us, he is still faithful to act on our behalf, even after he disciplines us? That's what he's saying. Yes, I'm going to discipline you, but I'm eternally faithful to my promise. In verses 12 and 13, he describes the coming of the Messiah who will actually crush the head of the chief in the house of the wicked It's a fulfillment of the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 when God said to the serpent, You will bruise the heel of woman's seed, but the woman's seed will crush your head. And in verses 14 and 15, God says that the very powers that rise up against God, the very powers that rise up against God's people will end up being turned back on themselves. You thrust through with his own arrows, the head of his villages. Let me look, look right here for just a moment. This is one of the things that God has always done. God has turned the tables on the enemy of his people. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den and his accusers, Daniel's accusers that had him thrown in the lion's den and God shut the mouth of the lion and preserved the life of Daniel. You know where those accusers ended up? They ended up in the lion's den. 
When Pharaoh came after God's people and the Red Sea split wide open and Pharaoh marched across, you know where Pharaoh and his army ended up? In the midst of the Red Sea. Remember a man by the name of Haman who was real proud and arrogant was going to get rid of Mordecai who was Esther's uncle and he built these gallows and he was going to hang Mordecai on. You know where Haman ended up? Being hung on those very same gallows. Listen, God may allow the enemy to bite at your feet for a while. But God is, say amen if you believe this, he's eternally faithful. And say amen if you believe that. He is eternally faithful. And God will show up and bring you his answer and bring justice even to those who come against us. God's faithfulness can be trusted. He says to Habakkuk, he will bring Babylon down. Destruction will come. The first, there must be judgments. And the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7, the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Everybody look right here for just a moment. Listen, um, I, don't, I don't know what your situation is. It may be a person, maybe an entity. It may just be a situation in your life where you feel like you have been wrongly treated or hurt. Just know that God is eternally faithful. You place your trust in him. He will vindicate you. He will ultimately make it right. You may not see it now. It may not be something that that you will ever experience. But if God's word is true, he is eternally faithful. And he will bring into justice those who hurt and seek to destroy his own. Say amen if you believe that this morning. Number three. He also rejoiced in the presence of God. We often talk about the presence of God as if it was a feeling. Can we, uh, everybody look right here for just a moment. Can we get beyond that? The presence of God is not a feeling. You may feel the presence of God. But if you don't feel the presence of God, it doesn't mean the presence of God isn't with you. All right? Because sometimes our feeler is a little jacked up. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know how else to say that. Sometimes it just is. So I thought I'd get theological on you. Sometimes our feeler's a little messed up. And uh, there's things going on in our lives. And we're not focused. We really make a huge mistake when we try to judge the presence of God based on what we feel. Presence of God is not a feeling. It's not a mist that comes and leaves. It's not an aura. The presence of God is God being present. He's there. He doesn't leave us alone. Can I put this whole thing together for you real quickly? So... As if you remember the first of Habakkuk, he's saying, God, what are you going to do? I can't believe you're letting this happen. And uh, this doesn't make any sense. How long are you going to let it go on? And then God says, I'm going to use Babylon and I'm going to, I'm going to pound your people and judge them. And so then we get to chapter 2 and, and uh, he says, I'm just going to stand and I'm going to listen. See what God has to say. I'm going to be quiet. So we get to chapter 3 and verse 16. So when I heard, he said, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. 
Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to his people, he will invade them with his troops. Let let me try to, those are funny, it it sounds funny in 2019 America. But here's what he's saying. When I heard what God was up to, it was troubling. Disturbed me. My body shook. My lips quivered. Rottenness entered my bones. He's just saying, it just overwhelmed me. It felt painful. It was agonizing to know that we were going to have to go through this period of time when our own people were going to go through judgment. It was agonizing to experience that. But I trembled in myself. I I longed in myself that I might rest somehow, that I might rest in that trouble when he comes up to the people. You see, look look here for just a moment. Habakkuk said, I can somehow get rest in all of this if he'll come up to me. If I can know his presence is with me, then I can make it through this time of trouble. I must wait while God executes his judgment on us. Habakkuk said, so that we can be saved ultimately. He said, he caused my heart to tremble as he wrestled with that impending judgment. He knew that God would ultimately save, but oh my goodness, the pain and the struggle to get to that point. God would save a remnant. God would rescue. But it would only happen after judgment. What would What would keep him in that time? It would be the presence of God. At a later date, when the remnant was reduced to one, in a garden named Gethsemane, that one would wrestle because he knew what was in front of him. It wasn't Babylon judging the people of Judah. It was becoming sin. It was feeling the pain and the agony. It was one who was perfect, who never knew sin becoming sin. But he had a promise. And that promise was, I know you will not leave my soul in hell. And so his presence was was able to bear that cross. Until the day of salvation came. I don't, and I've struggled with how to put this into words and make it applicable to us today. But let me just tell you something. God's presence, no matter what the pain, no matter what the struggle, no matter what the difficulty is. God's presence will be near to you and is near to you. And will enable you to be sustained even in the midst of the heaviness of that burden. Which leads me to point number four and I'll be done. He rejoiced in the promise of God. Here's the promise of God. Um, If the fig tree doesn't blossom and there's no fruit on the vine, if the labor doesn't, if if the olive, if the labor of the olive fails and if the fields don't give any food and the flock is cut off from the fold and there's no herd in the salt. Those are all things that would happen. When Babylon came in and destroyed the land. That's, they, they were, there's going to be a famine. There wouldn't be any food. There wouldn't be any flocks. 
it was going to be devastation. Although all of that happens, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will join the God of my salvation. He is my strength. Here's the promise. He will make my feet like deer's feet. And he will make me walk on my high hills. That's the promise. He'll make my feet like deer's feet. He'll make me walk on my high hills. A couple of things here and I'm going to close. Um, He'll make me sure-footed. The psalmist said um, in Psalm 1833, he makes me sure-footed as a deer. Enabling me to stand on the mountain heights. He'll seat me in heavenly places. Even though I'm walking through the trial, God ultimately will seat me in heavenly places. Make me walk on my hills. I think this speaks of overcoming. But I also think it speaks of perspective. Um, If you and I went out to the parking lot today and we tried to look as far as we could toward the bypass... We might be able to see a little bit over the bypass, but that's about as far as we can see. But if there was a helicopter awaiting us out on the parking lot, we went up in the helicopter, we would get a different perspective. We would see way beyond just where our eyes enable us to see. Sometimes God just gives us divine perspective. Part of his promise is in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of what doesn't make sense, I will... uh, I'll make your feet sure-footed and I will, uh, I will seat you in heavenly places so you can see what's really going on. Um, I, I, Pastor Clayton, if you'll come. I, I don't want anybody to leave unless you just absolutely have to. I'm almost done, but I want to close this um, and, and make some sense here to you. I didn't say this very well in the first service. I've done a little bit better in the second, but it's still not as... If I, Anybody want to come back for a third service? I think I can nail it on the third time. This is a, this is a tough principle to, to, to communicate. Um, the choice to rejoice was a choice. I will rejoice. This is where we run into some trouble in the church world. We try to tell people, ah, just rejoice. You ought to be happy. You ought to be joyful in everything. No, you don't feel that way. And it's, it's, it's wrong to try to tell somebody you ought to just, you ought to just be joyful. Well, you can't just be joyful. But you can make a choice. I will. It was a will thing. I will. I will rejoice. I will make a choice as I trust the mercy of God, the eternal faithfulness of God, the presence of God. I will make a choice to believe in the promise of God. And sometimes I don't feel that. Habakkuk didn't say, fig tree isn't going to blossom and there's not going to be any flux in the in the in the stalls and we're not going to have any food and I'm just happy as a lark about it. Now he said, even though, King James, I still like the King James here, although the fig tree does not blossom, even if it doesn't, I am going to make a choice to rejoice. I'm going to, I'm going to, he's going to make my feet like Heinz feet. He's going to keep me sure-footed. 
not going to fall when it gets a little bit crooked, a little bit rough. And he's going to lift me up so that ultimately I can see there is a bigger thing going on here than what I am feeling in the moment. So I will rejoice. Margaret Sangster wrote that in the mid-50s, her father, who was a British minister, W.E. Sangster, powerful writer, great Christian evangelical voice. But he began to notice some uneasiness in his throat. And there was a dragging in his leg. When he went to the doctor, he found out that he had an incurable disease that would cause continual muscular atrophy. His muscles were going to gradually waste away. His voice would fail and his throat would soon be unable to swallow. Sangster, knowing that he only had a little bit of time, threw himself into work, into the British home missions. He figured he could still write, even though his throat was giving way, and he would have more time for prayer. And so he said, let me stay in the struggle, Lord. I don't mind if I'm no longer a general, he wrote. Just give me a regiment to lead. So he wrote articles and books. He helped organize prayer cells throughout Great Britain. And he actually wrote, I'm only in the kindergarten of suffering. When people would pity him, he would say, don't don't pity me. I'm only in the kindergarten of suffering. But gradually his legs became useless. And finally his voice went completely. But he could still hold a pen with a shaky hand. On Easter morning, just a few weeks before Sangster died, He wrote a letter to his daughter, and in that letter he wrote these words. It is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice to shout, He is risen! But he continued to write. But it would still be more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. Sometimes um, things are difficult. People of God, even if they're not feeling it, still want to say with Habakkuk, even if the fig tree doesn't blossom, even if the labor of the olive fails, even if there's no cattle in the stall, even if my life doesn't happen just like I want it to happen, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. He is my strength. He will make my feet sure-footed and he will lift me up and give me perspective to see there is a bigger picture than what I may see right in front of me. Stand with me if you would. Let's sing this chorus.